Well, good morning. Today I continue in the series that I have been in over the past several weeks. It's a series, as you recall, that I'm calling The Case for Grace, Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. This series contains some of the most emancipating teachings that I have ever ministered. And I've tried my best not to rush this series because these messages contain truths and graces that are liberating people from their old rigid and imaginary viewpoints of a distant and disconnected God. And I know that sounds bizarre to you and I because we have this vibrant, flourishing, wonderful relationship with him. But a lot of people don't, to be honest with you. And that's because they're trapped in these old mindsets. They have not seen the loveliness of Christ. One of the things I think that we can all probably get in agreement on right out of the gate here is one of the things I've seen over the years is that people resist change. Would you agree with that? They resist change. We don't like changing, right? Now, after we go through a change, if it turns out to work out good for us, we're glad we went through it. But then when it comes time for another metamorphosis in our life, another change in our life, the resistance is there again, isn't it? Are you familiar with the term inertia? Does that sound a little familiar? Inertia refers to the tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged. And I've noticed there are two things that are difficult to get people to change their mind. It's the political realm and the spiritual matters. People in many ways follow the principles of inertia. Do nothing, stay unchanged. They don't want to change. You know what they prefer? They prefer straight lines. Just cut to the chase. They don't like hills and valleys in life. They don't like twists and turns. They like predictability. And so there are two basic requirements, two basic things, if you will, for people to overcome, to get beyond inertia working in their lives. They are, number one, a sense of safety. That's how David got the sheep to lie down in green pastures as he penned about them in Psalm 23. He would say, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And as I have said many times over the years, sheep will not lie down unless they feel safe. They're very skittish animals. And so for a person to overcome, to grow beyond not wanting to change, to stay the same, to get beyond this inertia, the number one thing is they have to have a sense of safety working in their lives. Number two, there has to be an inspiring vision. You can call a vision a dream. I think it's bigger than just a goal, but some sort of vision working in their lives. They have to be able to see that it's worth it. And how many of you know there's no way for us to be able to see everything, if it's worth it or not, till we get into it, right? I don't care if you're a carpenter building something, a composer putting together a piece of music. It's hard to see it until you've walked through it. Let me see if I can speak from the Safety and Vision Committee this morning, okay? 
Jesus said, it is finished. And what he was saying when he said that is believers are as safe as they will ever be. You cannot get any safer in Christ than you already are. They are as safe as they ever will be. And when their vision fills up, when their dreams overflow, when the cornucopia of your dreams begins to spill out and begins to fill up with the truths and graces of the finished work of Jesus Christ, then, come on, then, when that begins to take place, then the stronghold, that inertia, that is doing nothing, not wanting to change, then that stronghold that was once monumental in their lives will be broken. How many of you know that a jigsaw puzzle will fit together picture side down just as easily as it will picture side up? The pieces will go together, snap together just as easily one way or the other. Now, because you don't have the picture in front of you, it will take you a lot longer to do that puzzle. Would you agree with that? <laughs> you will not enjoy the journey. I, I, I'm not a puzzle guy. I can't even remember the last time I put a piece of puzzle in anything. It will take you a long time. You won't enjoy the journey as much. And when the last piece of the puzzle is inserted you won't even know what you possess because the fullness of the portrait has been hidden from your sight. Remember, it's flipped upside down. When you're done, you're looking at the back side, the side that would normally sit on the table. You're looking at that side. You have no idea what lies underneath of that. And that, friends, is one of the biggest problems believers face. They're not enjoying the journey. I am. I'm enjoying it a lot. But they're not enjoying the journey. They're not living life and seeing good days. And they have never discovered the riches of what they truly possess. They just don't know. Someone called me the other night and said, uh, I'm fasting. I said, okay, what about? Well, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, you're already a believer, aren't you? And I know that person is. Yes, I'm a believer. <laughs> You've already got him. He's already there. It's out of his fullness that we've received grace and truth. You've already got it. Everything for life and godliness was deposited on the inside of us the day that we were born again. And so what we keep doing is we keep reaching to the stars. We keep reaching beyond ourselves, reaching for something. I said, you might as well just go to the grocery store and get you something to eat. He said, well, I'm walking into the grocery store. What were you going in there for? Well, just to get me some bone broth. He said, but now you've changed my mind. And I talked to this guy for about an hour. He's throwing steak in there and 
fruits and vegetables and everything else. And I thought, thank you, Jesus, for such liberating truths. Now, I don't have a problem with fasting, but if you're fasting to get something, all you're going to really be on is a diet. That's it. That's all it is. Because we've already got everything we need for life and godliness. We draw from the inside out rather than the outside in. Now, that may be a revelation to some of you. I don't know. I believe for many years you had to draw from the outside, from heaven down. Heaven lives on the inside of me. I'm already seated in heaven with Christ Jesus. It's from the inside. The well is on the inside of me. The Holy Spirit abides here. Come on. So they never really discover the riches that lie within themselves. Therefore, you know what happens? They go through life not feeling safe. They go through life without clarity. They go through life without vision. They go through life without a dream. And the scriptures tell us where there is no vision, the people perish. How many of you have heard that before? Where there is no vision, the people perish. You see, if you don't have your own dream, if you don't have your own vision, you'll likely follow somebody else's vision or dream. And that's part of the problem we get ourselves into. You are uniquely crafted in the heart of God and by the hands of God. My vision, my dream is not your vision and your dream. For years, when I first started preaching back in the 90s, I wanted to be like somebody else because I thought they commanded an audience. They articulated well. And I was always frustrated because I was trying to be like you or you following your dream, your blueprint. It wasn't until I came into this gospel and this revelation of grace that daddy said to me, son, you can just be you. It's okay. Just be you. There is nobody that makes a better you. I've never met another Treva in my life. Now, there's other people that bear that name, but there's no other Treva. You are uniquely different. Marty, David, Fred, Judy, all of you, uniquely different. Let's celebrate. Yet the one who is supreme above everything lives in each one of us. So if you don't have your own vision, if you don't have your own dream, then you're likely to follow somebody else's dream. The attitude of that scripture, now this is not what it says. What I'm saying is the attitude. Scriptures have attitudes. They have flows to them, ebbs to them. The attitude of that scripture where it says there, where there is no vision, the people perish, it literally means without a vision, you'll just walk right off a cliff. That is the attitude of that scripture. There'll be no restraint. I love grace because it restrains us. Valerie and I were talking the other night and she said to me, just in conversation, we were talking about the Lord in the living room and she says, grace is more than the eraser for sin. Grace is the empowerment for living. I said, what did you just say? 
that was really good. In fact, it was so good, I had to put it in quotes and put it right on my Facebook. That is so true, friends. Grace is not just the eraser for sin. It's the empowerment for life. It's the empowerment to live. It's beautiful. And so without grace working in our lives, we're straining at the oars. We march right off of cliffs. We follow somebody else's dream. God is not in love with a future version of you. He loves you just the way you are. Just exactly the way you are. We always think, well, if I can just pull myself up by the bootstraps, if I can just tighten my suspenders a little bit, somehow that God is going to love me more. No! He loves you just exactly the way you are. My youngest son is coming for Mother's Day dinner today. I talked to him this morning on the way here. I didn't ask him, what are you going to wear today, son? Doesn't matter. I didn't ask him, are you going to shave? Are you going to take a No, it doesn't matter. I'm in love with my son exactly the way he shows up. Come on. Wouldn't you be as well? Absolutely. Like the picture side of a jigsaw puzzle facing down. Many of the images people have about God are inaccurate and have deviated from the true gospel of grace narrative. As a result, you know what happens? Like a little hamster, you just gyrate on the little hamster's wheel, performing, getting your exercise, going through the motions, right? Fasting when you shouldn't be, fasting for the wrong stuff, fasting for things that you already have. You have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, but yet you get on the hamster's wheel and you start performing because the church has taught us that. And when you're doing that, you know what? You will never enter into. You will never find true rest. You might as well just get a life-size, man-size hamster wheel and put it in your bedroom first thing in the morning. Get on it for a little while and gyrate. That's crazy, isn't it? Yet we've done that stuff for so many years. It's crazy. Who would have ever thought that better opinions lead to better decisions? Better decisions lead to better outlooks, and better outlooks lead to better outcomes. We exclaim that we want our lives to change. Oh, we tell our friends, oh boy, when this happens. Oh boy, I hope when this happens. We want lives to change. We want situations to change. We want our world to change. We want our government to change. But how many of you know that there is a direct connection There's a hyperlink. There's a correlation, if you will, between our views and opinions and our victories and outcomes. There's a direct correlation, friends, on how you see things. The scriptures say, as a man thinketh in his own heart, so is he. That's why we need our hearts changed. But we got to get out from underneath the principles of inertia. Don't do anything. Stay single file like a soldier. Walk off the cliff, if you will. No, we've got to get away from that nonsense. Oh, you hear things like, I'm tired of that constant wrestling match with condemnation and fear. I'm always wrestling with that stuff. But sadly, here's the problem. 
They have fixed their eyes on the exit sign rather than the entrance light. There's a big difference. In other words, they have spent their entire lives trying to escape, run away from, flee from, if you will, rather than running to Christ. They're always running from something. How about running to Christ? He can help you like nobody can help you. Always trying to escape things. You know what I call that? I call that a Houdini religion. They're always trying to pick the lock of fear rather than running to the source of peace. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, I'm going to read it from the message paraphrase, just because it's just plain English. You ready for it? Come on, look how it starts off. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Come on. Friends, that just said in a few words what I've been saying now for 10 minutes. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Oh, you're in a race. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Sometimes it feels like a sprint, sometimes a jog, sometimes it feels like a marathon. Oh, but you're in a race. Then it says, study how he did it. Study how he did it. And then it says, because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way cross, shame, whatever. He could put up with anything. He knew what to do in those situations. He was full of the word. He is the word. He was always listening for his father to speak. Next scriptures. And now... He's there. Come on. He's there at the right hand of the Father. He's there in the place of honor, right alongside, right next, right at the right hand of God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again. Item by item, oh yeah, line by line, that long litany of hostility that he plowed through for you, for me, for us, for we. Oh, it was long. It was brutal. Think about that. What did Jesus do for you? That long litany of hostility he plowed through And then I love this. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Marty, you're a nurse. You know what happens when you shoot somebody full of adrenaline, don't you? Uh Uh-huh. We can do things when adrenaline is flowing that is impossible with man. Super strength when adrenaline is flowing. Picking cars up off of people. You couldn't pick a tire up normally. Suddenly you grabbed the whole car and didn't think anything about it. You lifted it away like it was some sort of loaf of bread. 
these scriptures are saying that when we keep our eyes on Jesus, when we never lose sight of what he's done, we never lose track of what he had to plow through for us, the cross, shame, whatever. When you think about that, and then you begin to think, what was your motivation, Jesus? Love was his motivation. Love! Does he need another motivation? No! Love was his motivation. I read those scriptures several times, and every time I read them, I just went, oh my goodness. If I'd have been texting to God, I'd have just put OMG. Oh my goodness. God, Daddy, Father, could it be something as simple as that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient? That his sacrifice was enough? Could it be that easy? Does the thought of that truth shoot adrenaline into your flagging soul? Not talking about the Spirit now. He never flags. He never droops. I'm talking about your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, your feelings, your soul. I want to ask you a question. Was what Jesus plowed through enough to save us? Was that enough? Absolutely. Was the cross of Christ and the shame that Jesus endured to keep us finished was that enough? Good. Because that's the journey I want to take us on this morning as I minister through the fifth message of this series. It's a message I'm calling clearly portrayed as crucified. How many of you, if your life depended on it, just let me know by a raising of hands, if your life depended on it, how many of you could define what a dissectologist is. Not a one, huh? I had a feeling I'd run into that. <laughs> is it someone that works in some sort of science laboratory dissecting bugs and rodents and bats? Is that what it is? Uh, no, that's not it. <laughs> I know! It's a person who works as a specialist in the medical field, isn't it, Mark? No, that's not it either. You might be surprised to learn that a dissectologist is a person that has a passion and a love for putting together jigsaw puzzles. You would have never come up with that in a million years, would you? To say that my, <laughs> to say that my childhood was dysfunctional is an understatement. That would be like someone calling an alligator a lizard. An understatement, if you will, right? My life was a jigsaw puzzle that never got put together because we moved so frequently. As a child, I lived in five different states. I went to more than 20 schools. My daddy was an alcoholic and he deserted my mother on many occasions. My stepfather was an alcoholic and very abusive. I was in a foster home for two years, my second and third grade. I was bullied throughout school, all my school years, 
And I lived the lion's share portion of my childhood in survival mode. Can we just get through another day? Can I just see the sun tomorrow? Is my daddy coming home today? Survival mode. It was a dream crusher. Everything that was going on in my life. There's so much more to my childhood, but I just thought I'd hit the highlights for you today, the big hitters. My life was a puzzle that had way too many pieces that were missing. My dysfunctional childhood, I believe, is what has served as the catalyst to motivate me to bring clarity to dysfunctional and puzzling situations in people's lives. And so whether we're talking about in just the natural, natural things, or we're talking about spiritual things, I want to be an extinguisher, if I can, through the word of the Lord, of course, in putting out those fires because I can identify with what those fires felt like, those emotional, raging infernals. I know what they felt like. I know what it feels like to stand in the mountains of Virginia, looking down through the valleys, looking out the door, looking out the window, going, will my daddy come home today? Crying and just weeping for my daddy to come back. I know what that feels like. I do. Through the week, as you all probably already know, I am a salesman. I work over the phone, right? And on the weekends, I'm a pastor of this church. And through the phone at work and through the microphone here at church, I put puzzles together in people's heads and hearts. That's what I do. My deepest joy in ministry is to put together enough pieces of the puzzle to clearly portray the heart, the loving kindnesses, the tender mercies, and the unconditional graces of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If I can just put together enough pieces so that you can see He's loving and kind and gracious and merciful. That's why I'm here. You couldn't pay me enough to pastor a church if it wasn't for those reasons. Jesus also had a joy set before Him and He never lost sight where He was headed. He always knew he was step by step working his way to the cross. Unlike many people, he was not trapped in the subtleties of inertia. He was not apathetic. He was not inactive. He was not unwilling to extend his hands and his words of grace. He was more than willing. He merely listened for the Father to speak. And then he responded. You can hear him that way too. You can hear him speak and you can respond in any given situation. There were times when Jesus spit on the ground. There were times when he rode in the dirt. What was Jesus doing in those moments? He was liberating people from their rigid and imaginary viewpoints of a distant and disconnected God. 
He said, you know, I see your situation. Let me bring my daddy up close and personal. I want you to see his goodnesses. He did that for the lady caught in adultery. He just did it all along the journey. Nobody deserved that. He just did it. Why? Because he was teeming. He was overflowing with love and mercy and grace, kindnesses, joy. He led people into green pastures and beside still waters to give them a sense of safety. Remember what I said? Sheep don't lie down in pastures unless they feel safe. So Jesus would lead them with words like no condemnation. With words like nobody can pluck you from my Father's hand. He would lead them with words into green pastures and beside still waters where they could rest and drink in the refreshing love of the Lord. He led them into a sense of safety. And at the same time, He awakened them to an inspiring vision. Don't you think that the woman that was caught in adultery that day walked away with an inspiring vision? I guarantee she never returned to that lifestyle. I guarantee it. How do I know? Because Jesus empowered her to leave it when he said, go and sin no more. He's saying, I am empowering you to sin no more. Remember what I said about Valerie? Grace is more than just an eraser. It's the empowerment to live life. That's what grace does for you. Jesus was unveiling, like taking the drop cloth off of a painting. He was unveiling the portrait of his daddy. And he was demonstrating that his father wanted an up-close and personal relationship with all humanity, not just the Jews, but the Gentile as well. He wanted a relationship with the ones that lived on the mountains and the ones that lived in the valleys, the ones that were downtrodden, the prince and the pauper. He wanted a relationship with all. He did, and he does. In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Father, come on, Daddy, would have the privilege of inserting the very last piece the final puzzle piece into his son's portrait and declare, there, it is finished. There, it is finished. At last, Jesus had been clearly portrayed as crucified. Did Jesus enjoy the cross? Not at all. Jesus endured the cross. His joy was not the cross. His joy was His creation. The cross was the means by which He would take away our sins. In His death, He would remove the barrier the litany of hostility between his father and humanity. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How many times will Jesus have to die? Come on. 
That's right. Just once. Who was he sacrificed for? For all. That's right, everyone. How perfect are believers in Christ? We are perfectly perfect. You can't get any better than you already are. Perfectly perfect. How long does our perfection last? Forever. Without end, no expiration date. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, I hope you never get tired of this scripture because I certainly don't. Friends, this is my favorite scripture. There it is, right there. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The next time you have a flagging soul, would you please take a trip down memory lane and go visit this one right here? For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect, not better, not just cleaned up a little bit, not sprayed with a perfume that will wear off. He has made perfect. How long? It says right there, forever. Those that are being made holy. Friends, we were not made holy by our sacrifices, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. We were not made holy by the law or the adrenaline rush of obedience. I know there's an adrenaline rush there when you feel like you've obeyed everything to the letter. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, I feel kind of good. Had a guy, when, shortly after I got saved, said, looked at me and said, you know, he said, he said, I haven't sinned in like five years. Inside of me, I said, liar. <laughs> I'm like, What? And he was walking around like one of those Pharisees, you know, like he had an adrenaline rush. I ain't sinned in five years. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to tell you something. You'd be surprised to know that you probably sin every single day, but Jesus has made you perfect where it counts, okay? Doesn't mean we keep sinning. Remember, grace is more than just the eraser. It's the empowerment to live life. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright lives in this life in this world that we're in. We were not made holy because we perfected the art of a dissectologist, you know, putting together puzzles. And we were not made holy through better opinions, outlooks, or outcomes. We were made holy by the body of Jesus Christ when we accepted the truths and graces that Jesus himself was clearly portrayed as crucified. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, first he said, sacrifices and offerings. That's all the stuff that you're doing. All what you think is a requirement. Old covenant, of course, but requirements. He says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. All these offerings, right? He says, you did not desire. In other words, he's talking about God. He said, that wasn't even your heart. You didn't even desire that stuff. Nor were you pleased with them. In other words, you couldn't be fully satisfied by us going through the motions, us getting on our little hamster wheel. You couldn't be totally satisfied. Though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. 
he sets aside the first, the first what? The first covenant. The covenant he gave Moses. He sets aside that covenant to establish the second. And by that will, by that choice that God made, by that last will and testament, by that desire, by that will, we have been made holy. Come on, look at these words. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many of you, come on, how many of you grew up in a church where holiness was put on you? See, I think that's why this young man called me a couple of nights ago is because he grew up in the same church I grew up in. We've known each other for a long time. We taught there was three separate experiences with God. You had to be saved, then you had to be sanctified, and then you had to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Is that what you were taught to? Many of us were taught that way. And what did sanctified mean? That's another word for holy. Holy, sanctified, it means set apart, right? So we were taught that that was a separate movement. You had to ask God for that. You had to pray for that. and In some cases, beg God for that. But then you would start acting better. You would start acting differently. And so somehow you were responsible for your holiness, okay? But what does the scripture say right there? It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You had nothing to do with your sanctification. You had nothing to do with your holiness. You don't maintain your holiness. Your holiness can just get in motion and walk right off the cliff. You don't need it. You have His holiness. Amen. Come on. While growing up in the church, I, like most, was taught that my actions and performances were the gears that ground the corn to keep me holy. And just kept on grinding corn, you know, keep yourself holy, doing all this stuff. And it wasn't like every single day I had to go, oh, I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to sin today. But I was still very, very careful, very, very mindful of my actions, my activities. Thank God he has set me free from all that nonsense. I couldn't stand it if I had to get up every single day and worry about me. Come on. Would you like to know what that kind of teaching did to me? Come on. You know what it did? It introduced me to a distant and disconnected God. That's what it did. It introduced me. Here's your God. What's he look like? Hey, oh, he's distant. Hey, he's unreachable, right? He's disconnected. I had no sense of safety and certainly no inspiring vision. Jesus' last words from the cross were, it is finished. And if those words would get preached more often, we would change the church. Most of the time, they're only preached on Easter Sunday morning, rather than from the very foundation of who we are in Christ and who we are in our Christian faith. They should be preached as the foundation of who we are in Christ. The Father's unconditional love and extravagant graces were two of the puzzle pieces that were missing in my early Christianity. Wait a minute. Unconditional love? Love? Yeah, I can, I can swallow that. Unconditional love? No, see, I wasn't taught that. 
Extravagant grace is, yeah, when I'm good. No, grace is for you when you're bad, friends. Go drink a fifth of Mogan David or whatever you do and, and get yourself in a slum, if you will. I'm telling you, grace is for that moment too. I'm not asking you to go do that. I'm just telling you, I'm setting up a juxtaposition here to show you. Yeah, please don't go do that. A juxtaposition to show you that in your worst moments, grace is there for you. I habitually, I'm telling you, come on, maybe somebody can identify with me this morning. I habitually wrestled with fear, always trying to pick the lock on the exit door. Come on. How do I get out of this place? How do I get out of this place? How do I get out of this place? Rather than allowing Jesus to simply lead me into green pastures and beside still waters, my faith was flagging, to say the least. I felt unfinished at times, to be honest with you. I desperately needed a shot of adrenaline into my soul, my feelings, my emotions. I wasn't aware that Jesus' exhilarating finish, come on, His exhilarating finish, like the writer of Hebrews just talked about, on the cross meant that He could put up with anything I got myself into. He won't fall apart. Friends, if Jesus could endure the cross, surely he can endure anything that we force him to carry. He can endure it, friends. We were made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He was clearly portrayed as crucified. As each puzzle or in my case, as each message is put together, I have to ask myself a few questions. I have to ask myself the question, what is my motivation? What is my motivation for everything I say? What do I want the hearers to walk away with? How are these teachings helpful to my listening audience? How do these teachings help believers to live more fulfilled lives? Well, these are good questions that deserve good answers. Wouldn't you agree? And I believe that these are the same rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul wrestled with as he penned his letter to the Galatian believers. As the Apostle Paul penned his letter to the Galatian church, he laid the foundation of the believer's safety. Like a dissectologist, he put together a puzzle that reflected an inspiring vision. He opened his letter by reminding the Galatians that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins and to rescue us from this present evil age. It means poneros, which means to toil. It means to labor. It means to be frustrated. Toiling, labor, working, being frustrated. That is poneros. And he came to liberate us, set us free from this present evil age. Paul admonished the Galatians to avoid the Judaizers and their perverted gospel. Boy, I am not into name calling. I am not into throwing people under the bus. Paul did it, though. He did it. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians to admonish them, to warn them at all costs, avoid 
the Judaizers and their perverted gospel. I'm talking about a gospel that added something as benign as circumcision to Christ's finished work. He say, that's so small, Mark. What's the big deal about that? No, when you add anything to Christ's finished work, I don't care how small it is, baptism, circumcision, whatever it is, aneurysm, whatever, when you add anything to his finished work, it's no longer the finished work. You have changed it. You have changed it. It's not the gospel anymore. The Judaizers would come along. They would add things like circumcision. They added the Mosaic law back in. And the Apostle Paul is just telling the converts there. He's in love with these guys. Don't listen to them. Paul would declare in his letter that Jesus plus anything is a different gospel. That's what he was getting at when he said another gospel, a different gospel. Therefore, no gospel at all. He said, if you put anything with Christ, the altogether lovely one, that is not the gospel. That cannot save you. Paul would write in his letter to the Galatians that the Judaizers' teachings, he literally said, added nothing to my message. Now, if I was a pilot and I was talking to Fred, I'm sure Fred would be able to tell me things that added to me. Things I had forgotten about or things I wasn't even aware of. The Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. But the Apostle Paul said, those Judaizers added nothing, nothing to my message, which is Jesus Christ alone. The Apostle Paul would declare to the Galatians that man is not justified, come on, by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Those words are there, friends. Man is not justified. That means man is not declared innocent. Man is not made righteous. He is not made righteous by observing. And that's kind of a poor English word. It literally means by working the law, by obeying the law is what it means. It doesn't mean just looking at it from a distance, observing something. No, it means working the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he wrote that we too have put our faith in Christ so that we may be justified, come on, by faith in Christ Jesus. Not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. I want you to remember those words the next time you get engaged with anybody anywhere and they try to add anything to their salvation, whether coming in or just in the maintenance mode. No, friends, the scriptures tell us that the law was not made for the righteous. Let them understand that. That's in the word. The law was not made for the righteous, okay? In Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, we find these words. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live for God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at these next words. I do not frustrate the grace of God. How can you frustrate the grace of God? By sinning? No. By bringing in a helper. Grace needs no helpers. 
there are things that do not require helpers. So they just, it just frustrates things, frustrates your, your vocabulary. And so when he says, I do not frustrate, that word literally means I do not reject, I do not refuse, I do not set it aside, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, look at these words, come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If any part of your righteousness came by the law, then Jesus died for nothing. How do I know that? Because the law was already here. But the law could make nothing perfect. We are perfect because of what Jesus did for us, shed his innocent blood for us. What does it mean, though? What does it mean when it says, for through the law, I died to the law? Whoa, wait a minute. What does that mean? For through the law, like it was a helper. For through the law, I died to the law. Paul tells us that the law was the instrument to bring us to Christ. Like I always like to say, like a chauffeur brings the person to the cross and then turns around, go gets another one. But the law was not the justifier. Faith in Jesus, the one who had been clearly portrayed as crucified, serves as our only justifier. The Apostle Paul was not asserting that the law had died. The law is not dead, friends. The law didn't die, and he wasn't asserting that the law died, but rather that he had died to the law. Remember, I am crucified with Christ. So the Apostle Paul died to the law when he was crucified with Christ. When Paul said that he was dead to the law, he was declaring that the law no longer had any further influence over him. That's what dead to the law means. It has no further influence over me. A former landlord can't come and ask me for rent, can he? I mean, if, if I've squared up with him when I've left and everything like that, 10 years later, he says, hey, you haven't paid your rent. No, you don't have any influence over me anymore. Dead people are not influenced by anything. Did you know that? They don't jerk when you make a loud noise. You could stand at their casket and tell the funniest joke man has ever heard, and I guarantee you their face won't change. They're not influenced by anything. They don't cry when you cry, and they don't hold grudges. They are under the influence of death alone. Paul had concluded that observing the law as the means of his innocence and justification would be about as satisfying as a dissectologist with a two-piece jigsaw puzzle. Come on. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, the Lord just kind of dropped that in my heart last night. Imagine a guy who loves, he's passionate about putting together jigsaw puzzles. And you open up the box and there's just two pieces. <laughs> and that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he said, look, the thought of me becoming innocent, the thought of me becoming righteous and justified by the law is just as disappointing, just as silly as a dissectologist putting together a two-piece jigsaw puzzle. The law could walk you over a cliff. Oh, it did that. It walked me over cliffs. It walked me into walls. It walked me into a lot of things, right? 
Oh, it had abilities to do that, but it could never provide a person with resurrection life. Paul had discovered that his safety was no longer found in his performance because it was there for many years, as you know his story. That his safety was no longer found in his performance, and through Christ Jesus, he had found an inspiring vision that he would go on and write most of what we call the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, we find these words. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. In other words, what it's saying there, before faith coming into Christ came, we were kept under the law. That means we were kept under the influence of the law. It had the right, it had the ability to speak into your life. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up. That means all the exit doors were padlocked. Houdini couldn't escape through them. I mean, they were just all shut up. Unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Then look what it says. Wherefore the law was, come on, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Didn't I tell you that a minute ago? It's like the chauffeur. He brought us to Christ by showing you your need for him, that you're a failure, that you've broken God's moral standards. You're a failure. You need someone greater. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we, look at these words, that we might be justified. Look at these words, by faith. Come on. Everybody's got faith. How do I know? Because he's measured unto every man the measure of faith. And if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be ye removed and it shall move for you. We've got the faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Did you see that? It just got through saying the law was our schoolmaster. But after faith has blossomed, after faith has grown in your heart, after faith has been married with God's amazing grace, it says we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. I don't know of any verses in the entire Bible that make it plainer that we are not under the commands of the law as our means of righteousness than the ones I've just read. The law acted as a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That's what it says there, that we might be justified by faith. Not faith in the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. But after that faith comes, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Another way to say it is that we are no longer under the law. That's what it's saying. Why? Valerie's been saying it for weeks. Because Jesus is better. Love is higher than the law. Obedience may be greater than sacrifice, but faith is better than obedience and sacrifice. But faith, come on, faith is not our ultimate goal either. Love is our goal. It's not just faith for stuff. It's love for everyone. Love is our goal. Love. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he said, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. He threw faith and hope in the same bowl of alphabet soup, and he said, look, where's the L at? Oh, there it is. Where's the O? There it is. Where's the V? There, there, there's the E. That right there is the greatest of them all. Love, it's patient and it's kind. It's not rude. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no records of wrongs. It's always there to lift other people up, build them up. That's what love looks like. And Paul would conclude those scriptures by saying, and love never fails. Valerie doesn't like it when I say this, but I say love always wins. Well, that's the same thing as saying love never fails. She doesn't like it when I say that, but that's why God left her home today. <laughs> In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we find these words. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Come on. He said, you foolish Galatians. Can you tell that Paul's got a little bit of an attitude? You can tell it, can't you? Paul is upset, and he has the right to be. The drunken Judaizers had run his darling converts off of the road. He was letting the Galatians know that they had yielded to the influence of false teachers and had embraced doctrines that could never bring a sense of safety or provide them with an inspiring vision. Therefore, they would stay stuck in inertia. Apathetic inactive, unwilling to change. What was the false doctrine that the Judaizers served to the Galatians? What was it exactly? Well, I'll give you the shortest version I can think of. Jesus plus Moses or grace plus law. Just that simple. That was their doctrine, that you needed both. It's not true. Next scripture. The Apostle Paul says then, who has bewitched you? And the word bewitch literally means to fascinate with false representations. In other words, he's saying, look, I understand it really isn't your guys' fault in a way. Because someone came along and they led you astray. You wanted to stay with what I had given you, but it sounded right when they started talking. And because that's all you had ever known, it was easy to go back to. This word bewitch means to influence. It means to charm. Charm. It means to lead astray by evil arts. The Apostle Paul asks the Galatians, who led you to the edge of the cliff and then convinced you to throw yourself down? Does this sound a little familiar? Jesus in the desert for 40 days. And Satan says, throw yourself down. Paul noticed that the Galatians were flagging in their faith. And because of Paul's great love for the Galatians, like a dissectologist, he passionately, patiently, and lovingly took the Galatians back to grade school. We've got to go back to 101. And he shot adrenaline into their wilted souls by starting with this elementary truth. 
Next scripture. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He basically saying, look, I see you got a problem. Those drunken Judaizers ran you off the road. They walk you to the edge of the cliff. They beat you. They bruised you. They really messed your mind up. Let's go back to the basics, though, okay? Let's go back to where I started when I spent the missionary journey with you years before. Let's go back there. Let's start with this truth. Before your very eyes. That doesn't mean they were present when Jesus was crucified, but when the Apostle Paul first painted the portrait in their hearts about a crucified and risen Christ, they understood it. Because he got out his paintbrush and he took time and he painted the most lovely picture of a crucified Christ that he could possibly think of. Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. And then he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, look at these words, by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Good question, huh? Friends, we must never forget the portrait of a crucified Christ. The problem with following the law as our means of righteousness are many, many problems. Number one, there's no life in the law. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Number two, there's no justification through the law. The scriptures tell us that we were justified by his blood. We are no longer under the schoolmaster. Remember I was telling you a minute ago? We are no longer under the schoolmaster. We are under grace. The schoolmaster was the law. We are under grace. The law mixed with grace. You know what it becomes? It becomes a hybrid gospel, which Paul declared was no gospel at all. So let me ask you the question. Why would anyone, come on, why would anyone in their right mind want to embrace clinical commandments in place of crucified Christ. Stone-cold commandments in place of crucified Christ? Next scriptures. Paul says, Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? You began by means of the Spirit. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? That is everything you do, your performance, your gyration on the hamster's wheel. Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard. So also, Abraham, come on, believed God, and it was credited to him, come on, as righteousness. He just believed God. Thank you, Jesus, that you made it so simple. All the Father has ever desired from us is to just believe. Isn't that what Jesus told Jairus when his 12-year-old daughter Talitha lay helpless in death? He looked at her daddy, Jairus, and he said, just believe. 
Two words. Some versions say only believe. Same thing. Jesus didn't need Talitha's help. Jesus didn't need Jairus' help. And he certainly didn't need the help of the mourners. Jesus said to Jairus, just believe. It's the same thing that he's been whispering to us for 2,000 years. Abraham lived before the law was given to Moses. And the scriptures tell us that it was credited to him as righteousness simply because he believed God. Friends, leaving us in charge of our own salvation would be reckless. Nobody would make it to heaven. Thank God we're not in charge of our own salvation. When you find yourself flagging, you're a little wilted, you're a little droopy in your faith, just believe. When you feel like you're dangling over a cliff of despair, just believe. That alone will shoot adrenaline into your wearied soul. Just believe that the Father is that good. Just believe that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Just believe that he was wounded for your transgressions. Just believe that he was bruised for your iniquities. Just believe that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Just believe in the altogether lovely one, the one who was clearly portrayed as crucified. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Our souls, that's your mind, your will, your feelings, your emotions will constantly require shots of adrenaline as long as you remain fastened to a hybrid gospel, a gospel that demands that your performance accompany Jesus' finished work. I beg you, I beseech you, please, let go of the principles of inertia, principles that have become the breeding ground for apathy, inactivity, and unwillingness to change. We can be assured that in Christ there is safety, and in Him there is an inspiring, awestruck vision. In Christ there are green pastures, and there are still waters. There is no shame, no fear, no guilt, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there is an electrifying beginning, and there is an exhilarating finish. Many believers have not walked in the fullness of their possession. Would you like to know why? Because religion handed them a jigsaw puzzle that was missing all the essential pieces. It was missing the peace of unconditional love. It was missing the peace of forever perfect. It was missing the peace of extravagant grace. And it was missing the peace of outrageous generosity. Without these critical pieces of the puzzle, 
people are left to conjure up images of a distant and disconnected God. Friends, grace will change your opinion of the Father. Your better opinion will lead to a better outlook and your better outlook will lead to a better outcome. Finding satisfaction and rest begins with the willingness to change our mind, to allow the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. You say, Pastor Mark, my childhood was dysfunctional. So was mine. My doctrinal programming was misleading. Mine was too. God was so misrepresented. Yes, he was. What advice do you have for me? The same advice that I live by. Quit looking for the exit sign and look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See yourself seated with him in heavenly places, seated with Jesus Christ. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Friends, we were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. And the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Our sins, well, they were nailed to the cross. The litany of hostility that once separated us from the Father was nailed to the cross. The written code was nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. We are no longer under the influence of the law, the schoolmaster, and the dissectologist have been dismissed. You see, in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Father would have the pleasure of inserting the final piece into His Son's portrait and the father would declare for all eternity it is finished at last Jesus the darling of heaven my son has clearly been portrayed as crucified Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Like the Apostle Paul would take the Galatian church back to the beginning. I'm so happy that he didn't write them off, that he didn't scrap them. He didn't say, you're just too much bother for me. He took them back to the very beginning and he said, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, I want you to build upon that. It's Jesus plus nothing. Father, we're going to go through life. We're going to put some puzzles together. That's for sure. 
But the essential pieces cannot be overlooked. The pieces of unconditional love. The pieces of forever perfect. How about the piece of outrageous generosity and extravagant grace? When those pieces are removed, we add nothing to the gospel. Father, I am so grateful that I am not in charge of my own salvation because I would have wrecked it a long time ago. And there are going to be times when things try to run us off the road or walk us off a cliff. But it's in those times that we go back and we remember item by item the stuff that Jesus went through. The stuff that He carried. He carried the cross. He carried our shame. He carried all of our whatsoevers. And Father, thank You for those words. Words that You would reserve right to the very end of Your Son's life. And You would say, through Him, it is finished. The darling of heaven has clearly been portrayed as crucified. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.